They, uh, these trucks are a very familiar sight for us on the road. We see them going up and down 95 through our neighborhoods, delivering packages. But has anyone ever pointed out to you the, the arrow that's hidden in the, the, the wording of, of, of the logo? If you notice between the, the E and the X, if you see it, you'll, you'll see that there's a little X there, or a little uh, arrow that, that's hidden in the logo. And oftentimes, we will miss this, this image that's right in front of our face. Now you won't miss it. Now that if you haven't, if this hasn't been pointed out to you and you see that arrow there, now that's all you're going to see whenever you see the FedEx trucks. But, but here's the thing. Or maybe I should say this. Let me ask you this question this morning. Is it possible that the kingdom of God is right in front of us and we're just missing it? Is it possible that the kingdom of God is here in this room, but we've become so familiar with this idea of religion and faith and Christianity that we've missed it, that we've missed the kingdom of God right here and right in front of us? Are are we so used to the life as we've lived it? Are we so used to religion as we were taught it that we're missing the deeper meaning and the significance of the kingdom of God that Jesus introduces us to? I mean, I'll answer for you. I think yes, right? I think we do. We miss the reality of the kingdom of God right in front of us because we've become so familiar with life as we've lived it and religion as we've been taught it. See, in our our passage this morning in Mark chapter 2, Mark challenges us to reconsider how we view religion and faith. He, He challenges us to rethink how we see Christianity. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. I'm actually on the wrong page myself. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 22 in Mark chapter 2. And if you are pulling the Bible out of the seat back in front of you, anyone can guess what page we're on in the Bibles in the seat back in front of you? 837. We've been there the last week and the week for that, and hopefully we'll be turning that page soon. But right now we're on page 837 of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, Mark chapter 2. Allow me to read the passage for us. And again, church, maybe just ask yourself, is it possible that I've been missing the kingdom of God right in front of me this whole time because it's been so familiar to me? Here are Mark's words in Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and People came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Sorry, new, new wine is for fresh wineskins. See, I think in this passage, people come and ask Jesus a question that seems innocent enough, right? I think we need to understand this question is not fueled by anger or jealousy. 
But it does reveal something about the hearts and minds of the people who are asking Jesus this question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? See, hidden in their question is the expectation that fasting was something that Jesus and his disciples should be doing, right? It's not a matter of, of, hey, you guys don't like fasting or whatever. Their expectation as a people in coming to Jesus is that Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself, hey, they should be fasting too because that's what religious people do. But fasting wasn't necessarily something that religious people do all the time. Right? In fact, Jesus, we'll see in this passage, isn't necessarily saying that fasting is a bad thing. In fact, it was a sign of true devotion and love and belief in God. So the problem is that by the time of Jesus, by the time his ministry becomes public and he enters the scene, fasting had become something it was never intended to be. What started off as something that God invites his people to do as an expression of their love and their devotion to God, their belief in him and their willingness to go with him where he would lead, they took that meaning and made it into something more, something different. See, in actuality, there's only one day a year where God commanded his people to fast And it was on the Day of Atonement. The the Jewish people refer to it as Yom Kippur. It's a day when the people come together to repent of their sins, to seek forgiveness. And so they were invited to enter into a fast, a a time where they were denying themselves, where they would be humbled and, 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 and led to a place where they would realize their dependence was on God for their everything, for their provision, for their care, for their forgiveness, for it all. But as time goes on and the people of God wrestle with uh, living in a world that is far from God, they learn to to build some of these practices into the tradition of man in, in a way to almost convince God to do what they want him to do. God, we're lost, we're we're hurting, we're abandoned. Let's fast and show God that we love him and we want his help again. Right? We're told that shortly after the exile to the Babylonians and the Persians, religious leaders actually institute more fasts. Not just this one fast on this one day a year that God had commanded, but now we're going to build it into other times of years, of the year. In Zechariah chapter 7, as Israel's preparing to return from from exile, the Lord kind of calls out their hypocrisy, Right? He, he, he sees that they've built these extra days of fasting into their tradition, into their life, because they want God to see that they love him. And maybe if God knows that they love him, God will treat them kinder. God will be nice. God will save them. God will rescue them. Not because that's what God does, but because, hey, look at, look at these people. They're so good. Look at them fasting and showing God how much they love him and are devoted to him. And so in Zechariah chapter 7, uh, Jesus, uh, God kind of calls them out for this. Listen to, to what, what we read there. Then the word of the Lord host came to me, came to Zechariah the prophet, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? In other words, God's saying, was it really for me that you were repenting, that you were humbling yourself, that you were, that, that you were exhibiting your dependence on me, that you were devoting yourself to me, that you were... That you were 
giving voice to the reality of your heart. And it, it almost, his question expects the response in the negative. No, it wasn't for me. It was for you. It's because you didn't like living in exile. You didn't like being apart from God. And so you were trying to find, find whatever, uh, whatever equation of activities you could do to convince God that you were worth his rescuing. Was it for me that you fasted? No. The, the people of God had established more ways of, of, of fasting to convince God of their piety, and yet God saw right through it. So the traditions of man make their way into the religious life of God's people, and it, it's likely this very religious life that, that, that John's disciples and the Pharisees were engaged in here in Mark chapter 2. Now, this is not, we don't, we're not given any indication that this is Yom Kippur, that this is the day of atonement, that, that Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. In fact, it would be normal to expect Jesus and his disciples to be fasting if it was the day of, of, of atonement, because Jesus and his disciples were faithful to the law. Jesus didn't come to overturn the law, but to uphold it, to, to fulfill it, right? And so it's likely here that John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're engaging in this this kind of extra tradition of man that has kind of been built on the foundation of of the covenant of God with his people. And as you get to know Jesus, you're going to learn that that the misunderstandings and misuse of religious practices like fasting is one of those areas that Jesus confronts time and time again with most of the, or with with religious leaders. In Matthew's gospel, when when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he, he warns his his followers, right? He, he warns his listeners. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your father who is in heaven. He goes on in, in, in that sermon to say, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do. Don't beat yourself up and make it look and obvious that, hey, look at this man. He's over here fasting. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. All those years that you were fasting, was it, was it really for me? No. See, what, what Jesus is calling out is a, a false religious lifestyle that, that, that really has led to people becoming complacent to God, to seeing the kingdom of God right in front of them, and they can't see it because they're so stuck in, in maintaining the status quo of living a religious life of doing things the way they were taught that they were expected to do. They don't know why they have to do it, but they do it because this is what they're told they have to do. We talked a little bit about this passage last week, but in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story to teach a lesson about a Pharisee and a tax collector in the temple praying. Right? And, 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 and in this parable, in the story, the Pharisee prays, And it tells something about the heart of the religious leaders. Listen to how he prays in Luke 18, verse 11 and 12. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, these swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's kind of standing off in the corner. What is the Pharisee saying? Oh, I I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. God, I deserve your forgiveness. I deserve your love and mercy. Look at all that I do for you. There's this religious mindset going on in this world, not just back then, but even here today, that that we can convince God that 
we're worth it. That, that, that we're not as bad as we're told we are. See, for the Pharisees, or for the Pharisee and, and others like him, what made him good and acceptable to God was his, his religious deeds, like fasting twice a week. What he's missing, what he's not seeing, what he's not living in and embracing and standing firmly in, that what makes him good is not the things he does for God, but the fact that God loves him just because, because it's who God is. So the problem with this way of thinking is that it, it, it lives by the belief that God requires something of us before he'll accept us and love us. Now, I know no one in this room would believe that that's true. But pause for a moment. Think about the habits of your life. Think about the actions you take, the, 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 the ways you go about your day. Think about those moments that you most struggle with. I venture to, to say that though you would never admit that you believe what I said was true, practically, practically speaking, in the way we actually live our lives, we live as if it were true. That God needs us to show him that we're worth it before he'll love us or accept us. That, that we can be obedient and so we, we deserve his love because we can respond to him with obedience. But that's not the God of the Bible. And that, that's not the gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel that Jesus preached was shared later on by Paul and, and, and as Paul's preaching, he, he says that God loved us and sent his son for us while our lives were still a mess, while we were broken. Not that we, we started to get our lives in order and God said, you know what, I love this one. This one's got it all together, right? We do that. We actually, we, we do that. We kind of tend to like someone who, who, who's listening in class, right? You don't know this, but... I, I love, I love the people in this room who kind of lean in and listen rather than those who are falling asleep back in the back of the room, right? <laughs> no, the, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to fast twice a week or uh, uh, you know, every so many months throughout 70 years in exile to show God that, that we're worth his, his saving work he loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us while we were broken and in need of healing. And so the kingdom isn't about shoulds and should nots. It's not about I should do this or I shouldn't do that. It's about accepting and responding to Jesus' invitation to join him, to be with him, to enjoy life in him. And so what Mark invites us to do is rethink our whole lives and ways of understanding. And, and you know what? That's hard. We, we, are, we are a people who have well-ingrained habits in our lives. And not just habits of how we do things, but how we think about things. How we interpret what we hear. It's hard. It's a difficult habit to overcome the shoulds and the should nots. And so in the eyes of the people, 
we should be fasting, right? That's what's expected of a good religious person. So when some people come to Jesus here in Mark 2, they want to know why. Why, if, if Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, if he's ushering a new religious movement or a renewal movement, then why aren't his disciples showing evidence of their devotion, their piety, their belief in God by, by fasting in the way that was expected of people in those days? Well, Jesus responds to their question in verse 19 and 20. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the, when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, there's something very special and unique going on here that, that Jesus is drawing our attention to. He's saying the kingdom of God is breaking into this world right now. And, and, and guess what? The bridegroom has come. Now, now, for us, we don't even say bridegroom. We've shortened it to groom in our day. But, but, but in the Bible, and specifically in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the bridegroom to his bride. Yahweh is the bridegroom to the people of God. And, and so in the Old Testament, Israel knew that they understood God to be their bridegroom. And, and so in Jesus' coming, so has the bridegroom come for his bride. This is a moment, church. This is a moment. This is like the Pharisees and, and, and the disciples of John looking at the FedEx logo but missing the arrow, not realizing that something significant is happening here, right? See, Jesus' point here in Mark is that you don't show up at a wedding wearing sackcloths and ashes. This is a moment where you need to think about what you're wearing and what, what, what you're doing. It's not a moment for mourning and fasting. It's a moment for rejoicing and celebrating. For, for many of us, when we get down, what do we do? We go home, throw on our sweatpants, pull out a half gallon of ice cream, get our cozy blanket, sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? We try to do something just to kind of like make ourselves feel better. We try to comfort ourselves. But you would think it's completely, like, imagine that this room was decked out for a wedding, right? The bride and the, the groom are here in front of me, right here. And now imagine how ridiculous you would feel if you're wearing sweatpants with a half gallon of ice cream and a spoon in it right now, just chowing away. It's ridiculous, right? That, it doesn't make sense. See, there's a time and a place to mourn. There's, there's a time and a place to be sad and drown our sorrows in ice cream and comfy clothes. But the time is not when you're celebrating. There have been many moments in my life over the past year where I have wanted to just throw on sweatpants and grab a tub of ice cream and just feel bad for myself. But the time for mourning is not now. We have a God who is breaking into this world, bringing his kingdom, giving us hope, reminding us of our presence with him. As Alita said in our time of singing, that, that God will, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's something to rejoice in. That's reason for celebration. So Jesus uses the metaphor of a wedding to show that now is not the right time for fasting for his disciples. You know, at my, at my wedding, Tatara, our, our wedding day, I remember standing 
in front, right? Every young man, like, he's so excited for his wedding day, but the day comes and he's just terrified, right? Doesn't, doesn't know what to do with himself. So, like, I was a little bit with it, a little bit not with it, and I'm, I'm standing up front, and, and I remember, I don't remember much, but I do remember standing there and, and seeing Tara come into the room, and, and like, in my excitement, in, in, in my moment of kind of confusion and excitement and, and just being overwhelmed with joy, I, uh, I mean, she's walking down the aisle, and I just forget myself. I start walking off, going to go take her by the hand, right? I mean, that's, that's part of a service. When, when the, the, the bridegroom or the groom comes down and takes the, the hand of his bride-to-be, and, and then, then they come closer to the, 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 uh, the officiant of, of the service. Well, I did that. I, I jumped the gun by probably about five minutes. Luckily, my brother-in-law, who is my, my best man, just grabs me by the shoulder and yanks me back. So... So, like, he saved, he saved the day in that sense. But, but I was just so overcome with the excitement and the joy of seeing my bride walk into the room. And, and it's, it's overwhelming, right? See, in, Je- in Jesus' parable, the bridegroom is a source of joy. Jesus' disciples are getting it. They're spending time with him. They're, they're hearing him teach. They see him preach and heal and, and cast out demons. They hear him talk about the need to repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not going to be one day. It's here. It's now. In Jesus, the king has come. The bridegroom is here. They're overflowing with joy and excitement because they see it. They get it. They can't help but see the arrow whenever they see the FedEx logo now. They've got joy. And Jesus is the source of joy that makes the idea of fasting and mourning as ridiculous in that moment as wearing sweatpants and chowing down on a tub of ice cream at a wedding. The question I'm going to ask, again, I keep saying that, another question I'm going to ask you all this morning is Jesus a source of joy for you? Like, I'm not just saying like the, the idea that Jesus was real or is real, that he came and died for your sins. Is Jesus coming and fulfilling the promises of God a source of joy for you? Do you know what those promises are that he fulfills? Do you understand what his life means for you? Is Jesus a source of joy for you? Well, if it's not, it's okay this morning because to know this joy, I can, I can give you a tip on how you can know this joy. You have to give yourselves completely to him. What do I mean by that? See, this joy is not something that we can know and embrace and live in by patching in some of his teaching to our lives. To saying, hey, I, I really appreciate what Jesus says there. Let me apply that to this part of my heart. Or... or, or or, or, or I appreciate how Jesus tells me to love my neighbor. So, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to patch that into my, my, my leg. There's a little hole there. I'm going to put that, that teaching in there, right? See, we can't patch in Jesus' teachings to our current lifestyles and expect things to change. In other words, we can't cling to our old life and accept the new life that Jesus offers us at the same time. So Jesus wraps up his response to the people's question by telling us two short parables. 
Two short parables to understand the incompatibility of our old life and our new life. The life outside the kingdom of God and the life inside the kingdom of God. Two short parables. One about stitching a patch of fabric onto an old garment, and another about pouring newly made wine into an old wineskin. Now, for those of you who are not well-versed in sewing, let me explain something to you this morning. Because what you can't do is take a, a new, unshrunk piece of cloth and patch it into an old garment and expect it to fix the hole in the garment. What happens? Well, the new, unshrunk piece of cloth begins to shrink. And as it does, it tears at the old garment that's, not, that's already been kind of broken in, right? And as it does, it makes a worse tear in your garment. So what you think is doing a good thing by patching in love your neighbor is actually making a worse fix on that hole in your garment. See, Jesus' teaching about God's kingdom cannot be patched onto the ideas and values and beliefs of this world. It just doesn't work. And then in verse 22, Jesus talks about making wine, the second of the parables that he closes the passage with. Are there any winemakers in this room? Anyone who, who's made wine before at home? I, I haven't, I, I know it's a lot of work, so I haven't had the courage or the time to do that. But that's good that no one has because now I can tell you how the process works, right? And this will be all new to you. New wine is made from grapes, right? And in that process, I'm just going to kind of make it brief. In that process, there's a fermentation process where the, the, as the grapes break down, it goes through a chemical process where it lets off CO2 gas, right? Well, when back in those days, they would start the process, the first step would be that they would make this wine in vats. And then they would pour that wine into wineskins, these leather skins that would expand as the wine ferments, as the, the CO2 gas is let off in the grapes. And so new wine in new wineskins works great because that new wine, as it expands, stretches out that wineskin. But if you take an old leather wineskin that's already been stretched out, it gets dry and brittle. So you fill that up with the wine, and as that new wine begins to expand... Guess what happens? The dry, brittle wineskin cracks and bursts. It ruins the wine and the wineskin itself. See, Jesus' teaching and preaching on the gospel of the kingdom of God is like this new fabric and the new wine. It, it can't be contained. It can't be understood in the old structures and ways of religious life under the Pharisees. See, we can't listen to what Jesus is teaching and saying and think that we should interpret it under the ways that we've been thinking and understanding about religion and life in this world. In, in the record of Jesus' most famous sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his disciples that we can't serve two masters. It's logically impossible for the human heart to, to, to serve to do this, to serve two masters, because we can only be devoted to one. And so Jesus is saying you can't be devoted to the old ways of doing things and try to kind of work in Jesus' teaching as something new and, and helpful to, to make our lives better. Maybe the more helpful way for us to picture what Jesus is saying here is to consider the story of two sisters. One sister had the gift of, of hospitality and generosity 
She loved to serve others and, and make them feel welcome. The other sister was passionate and compassionate as well. Like, so the two, she loved people, but was also passionate. And, and, and she was attentive to the people in her life. And so Mary and Martha, two friends of Jesus, they welcomed Jesus to their home one night. And while Martha was going about using her gifts of hospitality, Mary sits down to listen to what Jesus had to say. Listen to how Luke records the interaction in Luke 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So I, want to, I know this is actually a, a passage that we look at from time to time, and, and specifically I know the women in our midst have looked at this because many of them struggle with those two personalities, those two identities. And, uh, and what I want you to see here is that Martha's gift of hospitality was the very reason that Jesus sat in her home. Martha's propensity, her willingness to to invite people in and to be hospitable was the very reason that Jesus was in her home. Her gifts were not the problem. Her personality was not the problem. Her timing was. See, she had Jesus sitting in her home, and she couldn't help but continue to scurry about religiously doing the things she thought she should be doing. Martha's gifts were not the problem. Her timing was. See, many of us are missing the kingdom of God showing up in our daily lives because we're like Martha and the Pharisees and the disciples of John. We scurry about anxiously doing what we think we're religiously supposed to be doing, what we should be doing. We're keeping up this list of shoulds and should nots. All the while, we're missing the kingdom of God right in front of us. And here's the thing, church, Jesus, I don't think he's condemning Martha here. I think Jesus is actually inviting Martha, saying, hey, Martha, you can do what Mary's doing right now. Of the two things, Mary's choosing the right thing. I mean, we don't know what the next thing happened necessarily, but I want to think that in that moment, Jesus was opening Martha's eyes to the kingdom of God right in front of her. And so she took a seat next to Mary and got to take in everything that Jesus was saying. Jesus invites you and I, too, to come and sit at his feet like Mary and receive joy in faith, to realize that the groom of the church, the groom of God's people has has come, and it's a time for rejoicing and celebration. So as we kind of wrap up our time in the passage, I want to challenge you to consider that the the way of God's kingdom is incompatible with the ways of this world. I, I want to challenge you to think about how you view this life in this world. 
Are, are, we, are we actually going to exert energy and to think about how do I incorporate this thing about Christianity into how I live my life now? Or am I going to see the purpose and goal of my life is Jesus? It's for him that I live my life. I want to follow him more closely and, and love him more dearly and walk with him all the days of my life. Church, we can't serve two gods. We, we can't serve the gods of religion or, or tradition or man and at the same time serve Jesus. We can only be devoted to one. So this morning, again, I challenge you to consider the kingdom of God is not something we can understand through the grid of how we understand this world. It's a, it's a little like going on a trip to another country right? Uh, not necessarily like going to Canada. If you go to Canada, we could pack up the car and, 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 uh, and essentially cross the border today and, and not, to, not to worry about learning a new language or, or exchanging money and, and, and all that. In fact, we could, we could take this trip with having to learn very little new things or, or do very much, right? But, but what, if we, what if we go on a journey to a completely unfamiliar culture and a completely unfamiliar land, right? What if, we, what if we traveled to a land that doesn't speak our native tongue? What if we traveled to a land that doesn't have the same currency, that, that, that has very different cultural traditions? What would it be like to, to prepare ourselves for this journey? We'd have to rethink how we do things. See, what, what we think may be normal here might be offensive in the new, new land that we travel to. What, what's offensive here might actually be the accepted way of being and living and, and, and celebrating in the new land. We have to rethink how we do things in preparing to go to this new place. See, I think there are a lot of us who think that the kingdom of God is like a trip to Canada, that, that it really won't take much to go there. All we have to do is believe and everything else will fall in place. Yeah, Jesus invites us to repent, to believe in the gospel. But out of that, the challenge is that we would rethink this world and rethink what it means to live in the kingdom of God as we follow Jesus and learn from him. See, the kingdom of God is more like a foreign and unfamiliar land that requires us thinking about it a little bit more deeply. I think the, the, the nature of the newness of God's kingdom challenges us to rethink our situations, to rethink how we approach everything in our lives. Conflict. Conflict is not an opportunity to win a fight. You know, when, when we face conflict in our lives, we, we don't have to make sure we're proven right and the other person is proven wrong. Conflict is an opportunity to deny ourselves, to make peace, and to glorify the one who made peace for us on the cross. War, war is, in some ways, is romanticized in this world. But it's not some romantic outworking of, of the battle between good versus evil. I think more and more we're becoming familiar with the fact that there's evil all around us. War is not a, a, a kind of a, a picturesque view of good versus evil. War is something that will one day be no more in the kingdom of heaven. 
Growth, how we grow, how we progress in this world. You know, there's a saying, uh, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? We got we to gotta grow from our experiences, learn from our mistakes, all those things. But, but growth in the kingdom of God is this downward path of humility. It's laying down your life for others. That's how we grow. In the kingdom of God, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's denying ourselves. That's how we grow. We grow by becoming less. That's different from this world. We've got to rethink how we, how we value and celebrate growth and maturity. Raising our families. Raising our families in this world. It's not meant to be this high-pressured exercise in, in keeping up with the trends of the culture and producing higher-performing and happier children. That's not what it means to raise families in this world. Actually, in the kingdom of God, I mean. What it means to raise families in the kingdom of God is raising up a generation, shepherding their hearts and minds after God, the God who entrusted them to us to begin with. We're to, to raise them up to know Jesus, to trust him and to follow after him, just as we've learned to do. That's the goal of parenting. It's not to make them successful contributors to our culture. It's to make them kingdom citizens themselves who trust in Jesus and follow after him and love him just as we've learned to do. See, the, the, the shape and the character and the economy of this world is upside down from the kingdom of God. It's different. And you can't just sew some of Jesus' teachings into your life like a, a, a new patch into an old garment. You can't pour Jesus' teachings into your old ways of thinking and expect it to make sense and guide you to making better decisions and having a happier life. That's not what the teaching of Jesus is meant to be. Church, the kingdom of God is a journey worth entering into. John, or Jesus' disciples show us that. They have reason for rejoicing and celebrating. The, the groom has come. The kingdom of God is breaking in. There's a new life in front of us. But it asks of us to surrender our whole selves to it. Jesus' teaching is not a, a buffet where we pick and choose the teachings we like and add them to our plates and pass over the more difficult passages or the less tasteful teachings. That's not the life that God invites us into through Jesus. And so again, I want to challenge you. Rethink the kingdom of God. Rethink the life that Jesus invites us into. This is not the kind of life where we can kind of give Jesus this part of my life or that part or, or think, hey, I'm, I'm struggling here, so what, what can Jesus do to fix this part of my life? When, when Jesus invites us to repent and believe the gospel, he invites us into a life with Jesus, to follow him completely and to not look at living in this life through the grid of what this world thinks is good and meaningful and successful but to interpret our lives in and through the life of Jesus himself. And to do that, we have to fully immerse ourselves in his life. So church, fully immerse yourself in the kingdom of God and rethink how Jesus invites us to follow him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, the kind of transformation